Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Oz Biz Live from our Barangaroo studios. Great to have your company for the next hour for the call. 10 stocks picked by you. I put them to our expert panel. And what an expert panel we have with a capital E today. Mark Morland from Team Invest. Mark, good to see you. Good to see you, Kosh. Fresh back from uh, from Harvard. Um, and Scott Phillips at the Motley Fool, fresh from the Southern Islands. <laughs> How are you, Scott? <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm less well than you blokes, but I'm doing my best to uh, get the dream alive in the Southern Highlands. Excellent. All right. Is it warm down there like everywhere else? Mate, yeah, the last couple, it was the most beautiful weekend. It's the warmest weather we've had for, well, since last summer. So, yes, it is nice here. Uh, it's been very cold over winter. I'm happy to have some warmth. Right, okay. Um, and, and Mark Morland, you've just got back from Harvard doing yeah. a course there with the entrepreneurs. The one thing, the biggest thing you learn from that course? Uh, that when we look at companies and management, we judge what they do and, and we judge it based on our, our, our frame. Right. And then once we actually went through these case studies and then we did that first and said, so what would you do? You know, so it put you in the situation with, with COVID. Yeah. So COVID stops, yeah. your business stops, what do you do? Yeah. So we go, blah, 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 blah. And you, and you look at what they did and we're really critical. And then once you get the CEO in, which is what they do, right. uh, or the founder, who then explains what the situation was and how they dealt with it and why, you go, oh. And, right. and what you realise is how difficult it is as an investor on the outside when you just assume you understand what's going on yeah, and you've really got no idea. Yeah. So the whole idea really, you really got to get into it and understand how they're thinking and why they do things. And it was, it was quite eye-opening. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that investment filter to a new level, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Okay. Mm. All right, let's get into uh, the stocks that you want us to take a look at this half hour. Uh, Medibank Private, Endeavour, Mervac, Amcor and Alchem. Um, stock of the day. Let me take a look at New Hope, who uh, reported this morning. Uh, 11% jump in annual profit for FY 2023, boosted by strong demand and prices for coal. Uh, Company posted net uh, profit attributable of over a billion dollars compared to just under a billion last year. Fully franked a final dividend of 21 cents, special dividend of 9 cents. Um, uh, Dividend yield is something like 13.5% at the moment, as you can see. uh, the market has liked the result. Scott Phillips, what did you think of the result? If you're after dividend yield, blimey, mm. these coal companies are just minting it at the moment, aren't they? Gosh, they absolutely are, mate. In fact, the company took the opportunity to trumpet a 13% yield on a purchase price. At $5.13, though, so that was 12 months ago, I assume it was. So over the last 12 months, you've done very, very nicely with income alone owning New Hope Coal. Uh, I'm a big fan of the company, mate, as a coal miner. I'm not a big fan of coal miners generally, so I think they are best in class. I am a shareholder of Sol Pats that owns some some new hope, so I'm also not unbiased here. Um, but I think they're, they're a really, really good example of, of coal mining done as well as it can be done. Uh, the results speak for themselves, but the challenge, of course, is 
The results speak for high coal prices more than any of that stuff. Um, you couldn't have not made a squillion dollars mining coal in the last 12 or 24 months. And that's why we're seeing these sort of results. Um, it's a really, really strong result that you couldn't have asked for more. They're paying out a decent amount of that excess cash flow as a special dividend. Uh, so again, very, very soft hats in style. But they're basically saying, look, we'll keep some, we'll give you the rest because this is a is unusual situation. The special dividend pretty much tells you it's not earnings they expect to continue forever. Now, for how long that continues is an open question. This has been the challenge for, for coal miners for ages is how much do you pay for these guys knowing that the coal price has been elevated for a, a couple of years now? Now, you kind of have to, well, I don't think you can avoid taking a bet either deliberately or, or almost by definition on the future price of coal because of the current share price, the current dividend yield, and the current level of profitability because they are completely beholden to the global coal price, both thermal and metallurgical. Um, I, I gotta say, it's, it's a really, really, really difficult one. I would happily own coal miners at the moment, ethics aside, I'd happily own coal miners at the moment who I knew would use that capital for my best interests. Right. Um, I've said before on the program, I am concerned that policy decisions, whether we like them or not, may be made by governments or, or, or communities that basically mean some of these assets are stranded assets. And so I got to say, if you're going to take coal profits and reinvest them in more coal profits, you are doubling down on an end result that may or may not happen. And that's what's kept me away from these guys. Um, I would happily, you know, if they said, look, we'll pay out every dollar of cash earnings, uh, we'll run this thing for cash for as long as we can, because there is a risk. We don't have an asset in X year's time. I would be in their boots and all because I think you're going to get a really good result out of it. If they're going to reinvest, and I was talking about coal miners generally, not just New Hope. If you're investing in more coal mines because, you know, every, if, you're, if a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, you're going to keep doing what you've always done. And we do end up with stranded assets. If we do, then the zero is the terminal value, in which case you have to get all that value out before you get to that point. I'm not convinced Whitehaven are doing that. New Hope are better than Whitehaven on that score. I can't say I'd buy them for that reason just now. If there was a clearer, more deliberate outcome. And again, by the way, I'm not saying that it has to be. I'm not saying there will be stranded assets. I'm just saying, given there's a chance of that and a chance of a zero terminal value, you want to make sure you're getting more value up front than you're probably getting at right. the moment. Okay. So you'd hold it if you've got it, though, but you just wouldn't. I really, I really would, actually. Sorry? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yep. Yeah, I would. I think that's right. Okay. Mark? Yeah, no, I think that was um, well summed up. I think the, the, it was interesting. Uh, New, New Hope was actually very cheap uh, not that long ago. I mean, I, I remember the time when it got, it got absolutely hammered down and the share price went down. So let's have a look what it was. But it was, uh, where are we? Share price. Um, while I'm talking, I'll find it. Yeah. Uh, because of the uh, expectation of what the media, what everyone in the media and government say, oh, coal's history, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. So people panicked and basically no one wanted to buy them. Right. So they were incredibly cheap. Now it's still- Or other it, states would follow Queensland and yeah. go, 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 but royalties. Well, that's a, this political risk with it as well, yeah. which one thing Scott didn't mention, and that is the, the not that they're gonna shut it down, but they're, they're gonna gouge yeah, more revenue in the name of, oh, we need to subsidize the other green stuff. Yeah. And it's basically just a tax grab. But look, they are printing money and they're on a peer, trailing peer of four uh, right. and their outlook statement is pretty good. Now, they are totally dependent on what happens to the coal prices. But yep. my, my view is if you actually look at so a lot of some of the stats I've said, coal is increasing significantly around the world. So even though a lot of people might not like that, um, that's the reality. And in Germany, for instance, they shut down a lot of uh, most of their nuclear capabilities. Now they're importing massive amounts of coal. coal right. I mean, how bizarre is that? Yep. But there's all this stupidity going on with governments and virtue signaling. I think coal is going to be very strong for a long time. And I bet you 
bet you we're still exporting it in 30 years. Okay. That's in my view. So I don't think it's a stranded asset. Or I mean, there's a risk for that. But the bigger risk is governments will gouge profits right. and make it harder for them. So would you buy it at least? Well, I, a team invest wouldn't buy it because it right. it's not the... I can't be confident that the earnings are going to be higher in five years' time. Right. But I'm saying for anyone who's watching it who um, is willing to accept the risk on supply and demand, because that's what it comes down yep. to, yep. it's very cheap. Okay. All right. And it's paying great dividend, as you pointed out. Okay. So it's a buy be- for somebody who is happy to have that uh, commodity risk. Right. Okay. All right. Let's uh, take a look at the stocks that you want us to have a look at and something um, a bit more stable, a bit more traditional than the boring, prices, boring. I suppose. Boring, yes, maybe. <laughs> Dave wants a view. Mark on Medibank Private, the health insurer. Uh, lots of the health insurers. Not sure if Medibank's one of them, putting their premiums up on the 1st of October, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, it's not a, we, we've, we have looked at it, a team invested. The problem with it is uh, they operate in a, a regulated environment to the degree that they can't put their fees up without getting government approval yep. and so on. So that, and, and that, that sort of limits their ability to do well anyway, because the government, obviously, they have to come up with a case to say, oh, look at our costs, they're going up. We have to increase our premiums. So yeah, it's, it's very difficult for them to make money. We always liked NHF. Right. Uh, NIB, NIB. Uh, and the reason was Mark Fitzgibbons is much more entrepreneurial and he worked hard to get uh, develop other income streams like he was doing all the t- uh, the workers coming in from overseas had to have insurance yep. that's not regulated right. and so on so he was working Any to white labels or yeah white labels right. of Qantas stuff yeah. like that which was weird to me, and, it, and the results were better. He was getting better profits than, yeah. say, Medibank, which is pure play, uh, regulated market. So if you look at going back to Medibank, uh, we're showing it returning uh, 1.5% a year over the next five years on our margin yeah. of safety numbers, which is like yawn, yeah. um, and about 8% on our default settings. Uh, that's okay. It's just above inflation. Remember, inflation's you know, yeah, we, yeah. We got a, and you've got 5% cash rate now. Yep. You can actually yep. get 5% on call now. Yeah, you know, so so that means when we look at dividends, and um, New Hope was great. Many many banks paying how much are they paying? It's four point two percent yield is below inflation. Yeah, which means yeah, it's yeah. negative. So it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not going to go broke. But why would you want to own it? Yep. Okay. Five uh, percent on call, which underlines the fact that if you do want money on call, you've got to choose your place very carefully. Because I look, we have an eSaver account yeah. that's still paying 0.1%. Yeah, yeah, that's that's coming spin. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you, you yeah, have yeah. to you have to do something. You not... have to do the work mm. within your financial institution yeah. to make sure you get the best rate because mm. they're vastly different. Um, what do you reckon, Scott, on Medibank Private? I reckon Mark's pretty much hit the nail spot on the head, Koshi. Um, I really dislike the the private insurance market in Australia for investors. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a health consumer, maybe a different thing because of exactly what Mark said. In fact, not only that, the better you do as a, as a, as a private health company, the less likely you are to get that uh, premium increase approved by the health minister because you're already profitable enough. So it's, it's, it's really perverse, the incentives there. Now, on behalf of the federal government, I don't want to give away more taxpayers money than they have to. I, I, so I, I haven't thought of it like that, but you, you're quite it's, right. That's absolutely true. Yeah. You go, to, you go to the health minister and say, look, my costs have gone up. Can I please have more premiums? If you go there and say, actually, we've done a really, really good job managing our business, our costs haven't gone up at all, can we have some more premiums? And the health minister says, no, you cannot. Now, yeah. on one hand, that's about the taxpayer. Yep. It's far more about the health minister of the day. And by the way, this is completely bipartisan because the poor person who's got that job has to every every six months say, yes, I'm the person who approved your health insurance to go up. Blame me next oh, election. No. I mean, that's effectively oh, no. what happens, right? Guy. So 
right? And so you're not going to get away with that. I agree with Mark too. Well, I, I own shares in NOV. I, I like that business a lot. Um, have liked it for a long time. Still like it a lot for exactly that reason that Mark Fitzgibbon is taking. But no, no. Well, by the way, firstly, he's actually growing share. That's Medibank's other problem. Is they're already massive, right? So where do you go from here? Uh, a bit like Telstra, a bit like others. When you when you're the, the biggest game in town. Gaining meaningful market share is really, really hard. They've launched the AHM brand to try and do that. That'll do something for them. Uh, but the reality is many banks are hiding to nothing in a very strongly regulated industry. If you wanted some sort of certainty of longer term cash flow, maybe as maybe trades come back down, maybe they don't. If you like the, uh, the, the yield, plus you want some franking and you're happy with that, maybe you might look at Medibank, perhaps. I think there's better options out there for it. Yep. I don't think it's going to grow because the sector is just structurally challenged for the reasons we just talked about. Yeah. Uh, and before those premium increases on the 1st of October, go <clears> and <throat> check and compare your private Amen. health insurance. Lib did that yesterday, would you believe? And we still have, have for us, the best one. But the second best oh. uh, was an extra $60 a month. And the worst of the six that we compared with uh, it was an extra $180 a month for the same coverage. It's outrageous, it's the difference in premiums. You're going to be, and mate, I've got to say, yeah. no, go the, good, the good news is we're in Australia, though. In yeah. the US, oh, yeah. my daughter, okay. their family insurance in Seattle, two adults, two kids, is $30,000 a year yeah. is the premium for private insurance. And it doesn't cover heaps of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which the employer pays. Well, you hope. He had it when, when he was at Microsoft, they did, but now he's out on his own. He's got to pay for it. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. All right, Scott Simon wants a view on Endeavour, um, mm-hmm. the, the big liquor group that was spun out of Woolworths, hotels, Dan Murphy's, uh, BWS, bunch of hotels and, and pokies. Yeah, that last word is one that keeps me uh, keeps me up at night on Endeavour, Koshi. Not for, again, moral ethical reasons. You can have your views on those. I don't particularly love pokies personally, but that's a different conversation. When it comes to just the the, the grog and, and the hotels business, and, of course, the pokies added in, um, the, that's the Endeavour business you're either buying or not buying right now. I think Dan Murphy's is one of the better retailers in the country. Um, nowhere near as good as Bunnings, but in that kind of vein, the category killer businesses that do really, really well, uh, I'm a... I'm a yeah, infrequent Dan Murphy's customer. I won't say more than that. Uh, but uh, between that and BWS, I think, I think it's a really good business, a very solid business. We know grog demand is is pretty consistent, pretty strong. These guys do it really, really well. I actually like the hotels business as as operating business. I think they're great. What I what I don't think you know at well, at, well probably get pokies. You pay 18 times earnings at a 4.2% yield. Now that's okay if things grow meaningfully quickly. 18 times earnings is a lot to pay for a business that isn't growing. So you need some growth. And then you turn your attention to pokers and you say, well, what happens if and when these cashless card trials are introduced and maybe become law? What does it do to the casual punter who doesn't have a card? Do they get one or don't they? What does it do to the the person who plays a lot but doesn't want to be tracked? Um, What does it do to the addict? It probably keeps them at the the machine, frankly, to use the card rather than otherwise. But as you continue to potentially see governments increasing regulations in this space, there is only one direction for Endeavor's pokies business to go. So... If you, if you believe that's likely or even possible, and again, we can argue about the probabilities, I think the, the pokies business doesn't get materially better anytime soon. It, it possibly gets worse. In fact, it probably gets worse in my view. Again, we can debate that. But the liquor business will be fine. The liquor business, the majority of sales, but not the proportionally, uh, at a gross margin level, driver of, of bottom line profits. And so I would love to, if you let me buy everything other than the pokies business at a, at a given price, I would absolutely do it. And again, not purely for ethical <clears> reasons. I, I separate my personal ethical views from my investment analysis. 
Uh, I would I would happily own Endeavor even if I didn't like pokies for what it's worth. I, I think I'm happy to have that dichotomy in my own brain. Hmm. But uh, but I don't think you want to be paying 18 times earnings for a business whose profits are meaningfully driven by those pokies and whose challenge on that part of its business is probably only going to be more and more in, uh, you know, significant over the coming years. So I want to buy it. I want to own it. At a, at a meaningfully cheaper price, I probably would. Uh, honestly, if I owned Endeavor at 18 times, I maybe I'd sell it because you're the sort of person who buys it, you buy it for the stability and maybe that's okay. I don't see it being market beating from here, particularly with those headwinds. Okay. And gee, uh, you look at that chart, both the uh, mm. the five-year one, the 12-month one, you're not, not getting much stability in share price. Not eh? pretty. <laughs> exactly. no. uh, and there's uh, a lot of sentiment there too, by the way. That's the other problem. Sorry, yeah. mate. Um, yep, no, I agree with all that. I think the uh, the other thing that it, it fails our uh, filtering based on debt because they've got very high debt. They're about right. 54% debt to market cap and 164% <coughs> debt to equity, which wow. is right very high. Now, that's even more of an issue now going forward because we're now in an environment of higher debt, higher interest rates rather, and they're paying a 4% dividend. If you look at their, their sales and earnings, uh, and Scott quite rightly said the P is too high for the earnings rate, uh, earnings have been growing. They've only been listed only three or four years. Mm. as well, which is not helpful uh, from our point of view. But if you actually look at their uh, EPS growth rate, uh, it's, it's, running at, it's been running at 9%, but their sales growth is 1.3%. So in other words, their earnings are growing significantly faster than sales. Now, if you, you, you question how sustainable would that be? And the answer is it wouldn't be. Because so it's their a, margins are... Well, they've, they've, made, they've been making yeah. increasing profits on basically the same sales. Yeah. The sales aren't even increasing with inflation, which is right. a bit scary. Yeah. And we're talking 18 times earnings. So they're not going to go away. And I agree about the pokey comments and stuff like that. But uh, the debt is the worry for me because and the problem, what people don't understand is that the, this company would have taken on this $4 billion odd debt they have uh, and locked it in for certain periods yep. you know, on the mortgages. Now, when that comes off, it might, I don't know what their debt profile is, but it might be 2.5% or so something. So they have like. their own debt cliff. Like yeah, they do. And they're, only, and, they're only, and they're not making much of that, that much free cash flow, really. Yep. And they're paying 75% out and that's 4%. Right. Dividend. So if their debt servicing cost goes up by 50%, it can easily go up 100 200%, quite yeah. frankly. You know, when yeah. they roll it over, then that could say goodbye profit. And okay. then no dividend. So right. I, I think viewers should be wary of companies with high debt at the moment because mm. it's a, they, you're right, they have their own debt cliff and you'd want to understand it. And I'm not right. saying I do because yeah. I haven't looked at it. Right. Okay. All right. So no for you. No. Um, Matt uh, wants a view, Mark, on Mervac, the, uh, the big property group developer it's spread across uh, residential and commercial and industrial uh, retail as well. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, don't like it at all. <laughs> uh, and it's from a team invest point of view, it fails lots of things. It fails on um, return on equity 1.7. We have a minimum of 10. Uh, our return on capital is 1.2. These are all really poor numbers. Their debt's not too bad. It's 40, 43%. But the, the biggest problem is the uh, return because their earnings are actually negative. So the earnings have been flat through nine, 2016 through to 19. And since then it was down and then it's big down in the last year. So we're showing an average uh, growth rate of negative 19% a year over the last six years. That's the average over the six years. Negative. Yeah, negative. 19%. Now that's not good. And uh, it's on a 47 PE. Now why is it on such a high PE? The market hasn't punish them for the drop in earnings. You know, so instead of the share price coming down materially, which arguably it should, um, it, the PE has gone up instead. Right. So this is an absolute sell right. from, from, uh, from my point of view. Okay. Uh, Mark? 
Scott. Uh, sorry, Scott. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so, go, go on, Mike. I want to see you do okay. me. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, enough about me. What do you think about me, Mike? No. Uh, let's get to... to I, I'm not a fan either at all. Um, it, it, look, the, I will I will be the advocate just for a second to put the other side of the case, although I'm absolutely in Mark's camp. The profit fall is largely revaluation profit yeah. falls. Now, if you believe those revaluations are reasonable and... I hate talking about non-cash if it doesn't matter because money was really real money was paid for these things in the past. Development profits were booked, and so maybe they were done inappropriately or appropriately, but just you know, in, in a sense, volatile because of the way they're forced to account for these things. Um, some of those can be understandable and justifiable if the underlying rental yield is sufficient for the properties they own. Those non-cash movements can almost be almost be dispensed with. If you're buying an operating asset, if you bought a house um, and you're renting it out. You wouldn't necessarily, you know, book it. You, well, you would book a profit one year when the price went up. The price fell last year. You would have booked a loss. But was it really a difference if you paid a decent price and the ongoing rent was pretty good? You'd be okay. You'd be happy enough with that business. So I'm half inclined to look a little bit through some of those revaluations based on interest rate changes, but not, and this is the important thing, the interest cost of that debt because that's very real, and the reality of what it will do those interest rate increases to spending in the economy. We've seen, mm. I think, almost every discretionary retailer I've seen release an outlook post-earnings season uh, when they updated their kind of you know six, seven, eight weeks to reporting date. I think almost every one of them had negative year-on-year mm. uh, -year comps. And so we know these are very difficult places to be. Now, layer on top of that, the challenges for office occupancy. I'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. Real estate's a really challenged area. So the question for me really isn't what profit are they delivering per se, what, what bottom line statutory profit, but how likely are they to be able to maintain and then increase the level of rental income? And what's the impact of interest rates on the costs of that business, predominantly those loans they're repaying? Um, and I think when you wind that up, despite me looking through or, or half ignoring those non-cash write-downs, I still look at these businesses and say, unless the future is much brighter than appears to be the case, I don't think they're anywhere near attra mm. attractive enough to buy. So the PE is probably misleading. Um, the yield on this is 4.5% still, which is probably about right. Um, but again, that's not particularly attractive. Mark already talked about the fact you're getting more than that you know, in, in a well-chosen bank account with a government guarantee in all probability. So no, not for me. Uh, I'd be selling if I owned it as well. There will be a time to buy these. I don't think the time is now. I'd be right. waiting for things to, to just settle a little bit when it comes to the way we're working and the way we're spending. Yep, really good point. Uh, next stock, Fred wants a view, uh, Scott, on Amcor, the big uh, mm. packaging behemoth. 15 billion US dollars in revenue, 40,000, 44,000 staff. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? How big it is. It's incredible. It's massive too. There, there are businesses, Koshi, that I kind of am impressed with management's ability not to succumb to the challenges of the businesses they're in. You know, Warren Buffett talks about when a, when a business with a reputation for, for excellent, sorry, terrible economics meets management with a reputation for brilliance. It's normally the reputation of the business that remains intact. In other words, it's really, really hard for even the best manager to overcome some issues with businesses. Now, if I look at businesses like Amcor, uh, Ansel's another one, um, these guys have to run a million miles an hour just to stay still because the yeah. IP they deal with is so easily and clearly and frankly quickly copied by others in the industry, largely out of China, but just in other places in general, you know, what is what is Amcor's point of difference as a product offering that can't be copied substantively or almost entirely by somebody else at a much, much cheaper price because they're not paying for the R&D. And this is so, so packaging and, and protective equipment that Ansel make, these are two areas I really, really, really struggle with. That being said, 
Amcor's done a pretty good job, generally speaking, staying in front of the the pack. And I said that that kind of comes down to me, to the management and the culture of the company, because by rights, this should be a much worse business than it is. And so they do get some credit for being able to consistently innovate, develop, uh, discover new products. And of course, by the way, with the boom, continued boom, despite some COVID volatility of e-commerce, I'm a massive e-commerce bull for the long term. Uh, these guys are going to have more and more and more business every year. So they've got some nice tailwinds from that perspective, notwithstanding the headwinds from, from competitors who are happy to basically rip off and, and steal their designs and their packaging. The good news for, for shareholders is 13 and a half times earnings, about 6% is the current yield. Mm. Now, that's a pretty good starting point. So I'm going to hedge my bets here, mate. I don't think Amcor is likely to be a market beater over the long term. I don't think there's enough growth in profit, probably enough growth at the top line, not enough growth in profit to deliver market-beating performance. However, if you are an income-seeking investor, that's 6%, I think you're going to get a pretty, particularly if you're buying at this price, I think you'll probably get a pretty good yield on an ongoing basis for an extended period of time. So yes, I'm talking about both sides of my mouth. If you want income and you want to beat the market, don't buy Amcor. If you want to beat the market only, don't buy Amcor. If you're happy to say, you know what, I'm going to turn a portfolio into a, you know, an income stream, for better or worse, with, with dividends. Uh, this one's not fully franked, obviously, but still 6% is a pretty good starting point. So I would buy Amcor for income. Right. I wouldn't buy it to beat the market. Okay. Mark? Uh, that, was, that was well said. I think the... A couple, what I'd add to that is their debt is actually 50% of market cap as well, which is in their case is $10 billion. Right. So going back to our story of interest rates. Now I looked at the 10 year history of this company. So if, you looked, if you'd bought it 10 years ago, today, 10 years ago, your, uh, average, your total shareholder return, including dividends, is 6.77% uh, per year. Huh. Okay, so which, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's no. mediocre. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to repeat what Scott said because I sort of agree with all those things. It's a very solid business. The debt has, mm. has a liability again coming in on as those, as the, as those uh, maturities roll over, that's going to be a big drag. Now, they've taken it on uh, and grown the debt, a lot of it to do with the fact that interest rates have been so low. It's been a good idea. But debt isn't a problem until it is. Yeah. So yeah. they have a lot. And I think it's not going to go away, uh, but it might struggle to do what they've done for the last tech decade, but it may, well, may do it. 6% still for me, we wouldn't, we're not interested because we, we want 15 to 20%. Right. Okay. So how do you find out the debt profile of a company? Well, you can have a look it, at it. It's, you can, a, it's you can in their annual it. report, isn't it? Yeah, it? It's in the annual report. You can yeah. look at the balance sheet and you can see what the what it is. So yeah. go to the notes of the account for the balance sheet. Yeah, yeah it depends on how the individual company account. reports. But you yeah. can, you can, whether, I'm not sure whether, uh, you should be able to get debt maturities, but it depends on what they break out. You yeah. Know? So it's not, it, you might not be able to get that that easily, but right. uh, it's it, it, the fact is they'll often do an average and say like they've got their average right. for their, uh, their their debt is 2.8 years or, yep. you know, the, you, often they'll say certain amounts maturing next year, the year after and so on. Yep. Um, but if interest rates stay up and they're still, they're still rising, remember, we haven't even, we haven't mm. peaked, it would appear yet. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are a lot of people that think that they're not going to come down anytime soon. It might be as bad as it gets, but yeah. we're not going to get the cut. Well, the, the real rate is still less than inflation. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. there's not, it's not actually restrictive. No, no. That's <laughs> so. All right. Uh, let's go back to resources now. And Mark, Lisa wants a view on Alchem, the, uh, uh, the lithium darling. You're not big on resources usually, no. are you? No, no. Uh, this is in Argentina. <clears throat> yep. 100% inflation. Yeah, so that'd be challenging. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> working there. Um, it, look, 
on conscious investor, it fails on stability, but that's not un, that's not surprising. This, this for, is, by the way, an eight billion dollar company. It's not yeah. a it's not a, a penny stock. No. So and it does have earnings, and uh, the earnings have leapt since twenty one. So they they bottomed out making a small loss in twenty one, and now they're making a dollar five per share. So they're producing. Revenue. Yeah, because the mines come on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it makes it difficult to forecast. Yep. Uh, so the growth rates, uh, you know, is shooting up, it's shot up. We'll show shooting up. It's shot up at the moment, and there's no sign of that turning. And the return on equity is now 13. So all our metrics now pass apart from stability, of course, because there hasn't been any. Yep. And this may be the start of stability going forward. So we wouldn't be interested in it as team investors concerned. But on our on conscious investor, it's assuming about a 10.9% on a margin of safety based on. Um, its history in, in balancing it all up, and on yeah. on default about seventy percent a year. Seventy, yeah, but that but that means they have to continue doing what they're doing. Right now, that is then reliant on what they're doing yep. as a miner, assuming they can deliver. Then the then it's the lithium price. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's it's very dependent on uh, market conditions. But you just you if the lithium price stays up, which probably will, yep. there's still plenty of demand, um, they're probably going to keep earning. Whether the growth rate will still continue, but the earnings will stay up probably where they are. So it's, uh, what's the P ratio? Let's have a look. It's uh, not bad, it's uh, 12 right. on the current earnings. Right. So it's it's a difficult one to say because you're really saying, assuming lithium prices start, assuming they can keep delivering, yep. then it's cheap yep. at a P of 12, okay. assuming, assuming. But not, not for you because of no. the risk. Yeah. Um, Scott, is it worth taking the risk? Because particularly if this is the start of the production cycle. Yes, it's mm. dependent on the lithium price, but also dependent on how much stuff they can mine out. Is that? Yeah, and that's and that in a nutshell, Kosh, is exactly the question for for investors. And this is why I'm going to first. I'll say I'm with Mark, mate. When you have this uncertainty, you're literally taking a punt, and it's a it's a blind punt, and you're welcome to. Uh, but you can't, I don't think, apply meaningful investment analysis and say this is a high probability outcome or have any confidence in the result. You can say, there's a range of outcomes, I'm happy to take the risk, and that's completely fine if that's what people want to do. Um, Mark's made a perfect point. You start by saying, what's the what's the past look like? And you go, wow, if you just extrapolate that forever, then X, Y, Z. Now, Warren Buffett himself has said, if you know, Berkshire kept growing at 20% a year, eventually bigger than the US economy. It, you know, th- those things simply are, they're, they're fun parlor games. Mark said exactly the right thing, which is you take that and then you say, but how confident are we this is likely to keep happening? And that's exactly the challenge for Allchem shareholders, for, for lithium company shareholders in general, is what does the volume look like? What does the, the price look like? In fact, the share price itself, if you've got growth, and the growth went from $1.08 a share earnings to $1.86 over the past 12 months, and yet this P, this is not a P of what was it, 12 times, I think Mark said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, there, there is no company in the world that sustains both of those numbers side by side. <laughs> you either have the PE catches up to the, to the growth, or the growth goes back to the PE, or somewhere in between. And I think that's why this is such a big thing. We talked about uh, New Hope earlier. With, you know, th- these are single-digit PE companies because the market's saying, we know what's happening now, we're not confident enough. Right. Now, to be fair, our job as stock pickers is to say, we're looking for where the market is wrong and trying to identify that. So I'm not saying just because the market's saying that's the case, it's necessarily true, but it absolutely highlights exactly how much uncertainty between 80% growth in earnings, a P of 10, mm. you, there's no physical way to combine those two numbers without suggesting one is wrong, or sorry, not wrong, unsustainable in the, at the current level. Um, so I, I just don't know. I, I have no way of predicting the future lithium price. I have no way of producing volumes. 
uh, forecasting volumes and I have no idea of forecasting what the market might think of that sentiment wise. And so you kind of throw the cards up in the air and say, where do they fall? I just don't know. Um, if all is twice the price in 12 months time, I won't be surprised. If it's half the price, I won't be surprised. Um, <laughs> and I have no way of handicapping yeah. the odds, mate. So I'm just going to yeah. say, you know what? We'll let someone else play that parlor game. Watch, watch roulette, don't play it. Uh, is my general advice. I'd, I'd stay away from this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, as you, as you both often say, when you've only got to pick twenty or thirty stocks in your portfolio, uh, some yeah. are just too hard, and there are easier ways to make money than this one. Spot on. All right, yep. let's recap the uh, the first five stocks. Stock of the day: New Hope. Um, after their report today, billion dollar profit. Uh, Scott has a hold. Mark a no on the Team Invest filters, but if you're prepared to accept the risk of coal uh, and the future of coal, then it look, looks pretty cheap. Uh, Medibank a no from both, both prefer NIB. Uh, Endeavour a no, sell from both on Murbac. Uh, a no on Amcor, except for Scott, if it's part of an income portfolio. If, if you're chasing income, then this is a reasonable option for you. And all chem a no from both. Uh, here on the call, we're tracking our own high conviction fantasy fund as picked by the investment committee, which you can see the last committee meeting live on osbiz.com. Uh, at the September meeting, a Paradigm Farmer was traded out, Challenger in, which also received 1% trims from Altium and Paladin. Uh, the fund is currently up around 11%. Um, in this half hour, we're going to be running our eye over Atlas Arteria, Treasury Wider States, Dexus, Seek, and GPT. Uh, Mark, uh, Robert wants to be on Atlas Arteria, the big toll road uh, owner and operator uh, in France, Germany, and the United States. Uh, it's the old Macquarie Infrastructure yeah. Group, isn't it? Yeah. That was so why, so why do you think Macquarie sold it? <laughs> uh, yes, a bit like um, how the Westfield owners yeah, absolutely. sold out. Yeah, yeah, peak yeah. of the market. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. that's the start but, decision. But, okay. but the argument yeah. is... Toll roads are a good hedge against inflation. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting. I had a look at their earnings, and the earnings over the last uh, decade have been, well, they've been down actually. So negative 4.1% average per year. Over the, okay. year, the earnings have been decreasing. So COVID would have had a big increase. Oh, yeah, but, it, but, it's, in but not, there's not a big years. drop in their earnings from that. Right. So the, the drop actually was in 18. State was flat through that period, then went up mm. a little bit post COVID, and then it's flat again. Right. So that sort of argues against that notion mm. that it should be. Yeah. Now, it depends on their agreements with the governments. Yep. You know, it's not just an automatic assumption that they can bump the prices. But um, So negative four on earnings and negative 11 on sales average over the last six years. Oh God, that's horrible. It's not good. No. <laughs> return on equity, 3.5. Return on capital, 2.8, which is miserable. Yeah. And it doesn't have a massive amount of debt. It's only got 26% uh, debt to equity. So it's not because of a massive debt overhang. That makes it even scarier for me uh, that they have such w poor return on equity figures. Right. So. It's on a 34 PE based on the current earnings, which for uh, negative growth is clearly ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it is paying a dividend. It's paying, um, I think it is, uh, is it seven? Dividend, dividend, dividend. Uh, the accounting of these things 5.5. confused me. As an old auditor, I can't see how you can pay <laughs> dividends out of debt. And all well, here you go. Sort of the stuff. payout ratio is five, sorry, they paid 5.5% yield, and that was 189% of earnings. 
So, so what they're doing is they're paying out because what it usually is, yeah. and this is where we, we yeah Scott touched on it before about the revaluation issue because this yeah. is like a, yeah. a bit like a read it's a yeah. it's called uh, if it's an infrastructure fund really yeah. but the problem is on the way up the revaluations still come through as profit yeah so it looks like earnings even though they're not cash earnings yeah and now we're we don't want to get into making excuses for the fact when it goes down that then that's coming off your earnings oh, you can say it's not a cash thing but it's you can't yeah. have it both ways oh no uh, I and I think, the, I think looking at the actual earnings on the REITs as well, as, and Scott made that point, what are they actually generating in, in cash uh, yeah. income? That is usually significantly smaller than yeah. what the revaluations are. Yep. Yeah. So it's a big risk. All right. So not for you. No. Uh, Scott, is it for you? I must admit the biggest bonus for these toll operators must have been the introduction of eTag because I could not yeah. tell you Every time it beeps, how much I'm paying mm-hmm. now. Just, you just accept it, don't you? It's, it's a glorious model, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like renewable subscriptions, Netflix and other things. They just kind of exactly. happen. You never really feel it. Uh, by the way, just quietly, I'm not going to pick on our, our fund manager brethren too much, but if you had to pay a check every year for your fund manager's fees, I guarantee there'd be a whole lot fewer people who invested in funds yes. rather than being able to deduct it from the assets as if it didn't exist. Yep. Same with superannuation, by the way. If you had to literally hand over the readies, very, very different scenario. Hey, um, let's get to to Atlas. I, I'm with Mark. You know, so you mentioned the uh, paying paying uh, dividends without making profits, Koshi. You'd know this, but our viewers mightn't. Um, the government's actually changed the rules specifically to allow for these types of assets. Uh, you you weren't allowed to pay dividends if you didn't have reported profits to pay them mm. from. And the government wanted to, to basically have things like Transurban and, and what was Macquarie Infrastructure off their books and on someone else's. And so to sweeten the deal, I said, look, here's the deal. Load the thing up with debt. You take all the risk. We'll pretend we have no debt or no public spending. We'll give you a tax kickback. We'll let you deduct a massive amount of interest on the debt. And then we'll let you pay the dividends without actually reporting a profit. Uh, if it sounds as dodgy as it Crazy. sounds, well, then you're pretty much right. Now, again, <laughs> companies are doing nothing wrong, right? They are absolutely taking advantage of what the government effectively asked them to do, which is do this stuff for us so we can look good. It's absolutely a reflection on the polys, not the company. The, I, I share Mark's concern. This is a fascinating one, right? On one hand, you've got Transurban loaded up with debt. I regularly joke that Transurban's a, you know, a debt pile with a toll road attached rather than the other way around. The tra- challenge for Atlas Arteria is they're a much more conservative business model because they don't have anywhere near as much debt as a proportion of their total value, which is on one hand great. What it does do though is absolutely puts in stark relief. As Mark just said, terrible returns on equity, um, really ordinary operating performance because they're not using that debt to do it. And it shows you exactly what these things are as structures. I will say in Atlas's favor, um, the last three years, I've actually got some reasonably good sequential growth post-COVID. And you mentioned COVID, Koshi. There is some recovery from that. And I'm not entirely sure that the last seven or eight years is as much a reflection of their business as the last few, but that growth rate equally is off very low base. So I think there's more stability than maybe appears. It is worth asking, though, how this can be such a volatile business. We talk about toll road businesses, clip the ticket. We talk about it being you know, safe, secure, uh, predictable businesses. Uh, Atlas Arteria has been anything but that. I, I share Mark's concern. Look, 5% yield, you might start to be interested, but they're paying out more than they're earning. There's still mm. a decent amount of debt. That debt is going to cost more. We talked about that before yeah. with with other companies. Remembering too, by the way, the debt is going to cost more even after rates stabilise and cuts start coming down because they're going to roll over two, three, four, five-year yeah. fixed-term debt like, like mortgage holders are. All of a sudden, you roll it over. Even if rates fall from four to three, for example, at the RBA, if they're paying two now, they might be paying five or six later. So even as rates come down at the official cash rate level, and even for mortgages, 
some of these companies rolling over debt, we're going to be copying the, the impact of this mm. for another three or four years. So be very, very, very careful, as Mark says, when it comes to debt. The cost will keep going up for many companies, even as the official rate comes down. Yep, yep. That lag effect is really important to understand. Um, Daryl wants a view, Scott, on our biggest winemaker, Treasury Wine Estates. Of course, the flagship is Penfolds. And uh, with a whole lot of talk that maybe China will let our wine exports back in there, people are getting Mm. pretty optimistic. And I will say up front, I'm a shareholder and I think it's a buy. So uh, take take both those things together rather than separately. Uh, but I'm a shareholder because I think it's a buy. So uh, you're right. So it's currently doing a very good job of, of harvesting cash in Australia. Uh, the US business continues to be a bit rocky, as does the European business. And China is the, the absolute blue sky potential for upside here to some degree. And so when you think about Treasury, you've got to think about those different parts. Um, the numbers on Penfolds are extraordinary. The average sales dollar value per case, the profitability of these wines is extraordinary because they've learned what their predecessors got wrong for years and years and years, which is you can't sell $5 wine and make money. You just yep. can't do it. There's too much wine around. Um, the, the retailers got it over you because they stock hundreds and hundreds of brands. You know, If you go to, go to supermarket, you buy cereal, there's probably, I don't know, 20, 25 brands. You buy baked beans, there's three. You go to, people want variety of, of brands for wine, so the retailers have the whip hand. In Treasury's case, if you've got Penfolds or Wins or Lindemans and a couple of others, and you can say, hey, we're going to charge much, much more than we used to for this thing, um, and it costs us not that much more to make, of course, you know, uh, well, better quality grapes cost more, you've got to store it for longer, there are incremental costs, but the margins are extraordinary on high price wine if you can justify the price. They're doing a really great job of that with Penfolds. Um, it, it's phenomenally profitable relative to the rest of their business. If China doesn't reopen, the shares are probably fairly valued, maybe a bit overvalued. If China does reopen Australian wines, remember just before the, 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 the lockout, the trade lockout, they were Australian wines were going at 20% by volume and another 20% by average mm. price. So Chinese were drinking more Australian wines and paying more for those extra wines they were drinking. That is music to, to Treasury's ears. That's why I'm a shareholder. Um, it's not, if, if it doesn't work, I think it's a fair price. Uh, maybe slightly overvalued by now, but there or thereabouts. If it does work, I think there's meaningful upside because China can be, uh, frankly, at some point, more than the rest of the business combined, in yep. my view. If it gets to anything like that size, the current share price is cheap. Yeah, and and when China was going gangbusters, it was at 19 bucks a couple of years ago. Uh, Mark, are you as optimistic? No. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm not a shareholder. Right. So I don't have that bias. Oh <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying Scott's biased. <laughs> I'm saying he has a uh, glass unconscious. He's have a gla- he has a glass half full approach to it. Right. I'm going to go glass half empty. Right. Uh, half full of penfolds, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple, a couple of things. Treasury, it, it, it was doing very well up until the China was. Yeah, it was, and it was growing nicely, and yeah. everything was sweet. And in fact, the ten year, even considering the drop since then, and it's basically been pretty flat for the last four years. Uh, the ten-year total return on Treasury last ten years, as of today, is twelve point two nine percent per year. Right. Well, that's the best one we've looked at. Yeah. yeah. By the way, today. That's so that's actually pretty good. Yep. So the history has been good. I think it is all dependent on the China thing. Yeah. So if the China opens up and they get that rolling again, Scott's right. It'll be off to the races, and the, the share price will march up. It's it's on a twenty seven p at the moment, so it's not cheap. Mm. But, is it, but that's in the green. So right. the treasury's typically had uh, quite a high. It's carried quite a high PE ratio. So that's market sentiment, really. Yeah. So the market's gone. Oh, we like it, and it's it's uh, uh, the range has been twenty four to thirty four over the last few years. Yep. So I think, and back when it was at when it, at its peak back in um, when before the China problem, it peaked at fifty. 
right. PE, which right. is very high, of course. Okay. So look, it's, it's good. It's so a, you're it, saying no now. I'm saying, no, I'm not saying no now. I'm just saying it's a quality business. I wouldn't buy it unless you're speculating on the China one happening. Right. And it's still me, to me, it's, I wouldn't buy it for right. that alone okay. at this stage. All right. So if, it, I'd, if, I'd say a, if you've got it, I'd probably say it's a hold. Right. I'm not. Okay. It's a. It's done. It's a. It's a good company. It's had a good history. It's got lots of good balls to play with. Right. Uh, but the China thing was a big blow, of course. Yeah, but that was yeah, that was political. Sorry. But it, it was but nothing they, to do with Treasury. No. They just uh, no. they just copped it. But there are indications. Yeah. That it's going to open right. up again. That's right. All right. Uh, Harry wants a view, Mark, on Dexus, the big uh, commercial property developer owner. Um, you call it a. Uh, commercial property REIT, wouldn't you? Or pretty yeah, close. It yeah. does a bit more than just investing commercial property. Uh, yes, 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 yes. I've just lost it. I'll get it back. DX, right, DX, right. uh, DX, right. <coughs> right. Yeah. So, Dexas, um, boy, we have a lot of. We're a lot in the property REITs area today, haven't we? Yeah, we do. <laughs> so we don't repeat the same things we said about the other ones, but um, Dexas has got. Um, Look, just looking at the numbers, it fell off a cliff from their earnings on 22 to 23, which I suspect would be revaluation. So yep. what's happened now is I think Texas is one of the ones that's tra- uh, trading significantly under uh, net asset value. Like them all. They're yep. all about 25, that's 30%. Right. Percent, so they? the question is, is that the right number? Because there yep. still has, from my understanding, there's still been, there hasn't been a lot of price discovery. As no. in, remember the prices are set at the margin. When when a, an equivalent property gets sold, if it gets sold yep. at 40% below, suddenly all the other ones are worth 40% yeah. less. So they're all holding off. They did revalue part of their portfolio. Because they, they would have had to. Yes. Yeah, I suspect there's a lot worse to come. Right. So these guys have all Which got is what the market is. very big headwind yeah. uh, going forward, plus interest rates, as we've discussed already, so as, is a big issue for all yeah. of these companies. Uh, for debt, yeah, they've got 43% debt to equity, so it's not massive, but it'll be material. Um, I wouldn't, based on that, I wouldn't go near it because I don't, yeah. the, current, the current return on equity is negative 2.2, so they're losing money. So they made a yeah. loss last year. I think it's way too soon. Uh, we need to see some blood in the streets on commercial um, uh, property, I think, before you would okay. say it's a time to buy it. There will be a time to buy it. Yeah. But Scott, a lot of investors say to me, gee, these REITs are 30% discount to their asset value. Yeah. What a bargain. And you go, well, no, because that's what the market thinks that the net assets are going to drop to. That's right. And, that, and that's exactly the point, mate. It's exactly what we talked about with Allcam with the PE and the, and the growth rate. Yeah. The same is absolutely true of share prices and net asset values. You can, one, one will probably be right. Maybe they're both wrong at somewhere in between. But assuming you can take one for granted and therefore the other one is wrong requires a very, very large dose of, of, of blind faith or, or confidence. And maybe they'll be right, but they could be right in the other direction as well for exactly the reason you say, Koshi. A couple of things quickly. The first is um, we talked a lot about, about, about you know, REITs in general. I'm actually really bullish. I'll give you, I'm going to say I'm a sell for this one, but I'm going to give you a buy. It's Goodman Group. Um, I, I really like their uh, warehouse DC focused business. I like they've got uh, geographic diversification. They're also largely a more a fund manager than actually a, a an investor in those yeah. REITs. They own about 20% of, their, of each REIT uh, or each property mm-hmm. trust, sorry, within the REIT. Uh, the other 80% is owned by external investors and they clip the ticket on managing these things. So I like them. So I will say that. Uh, general other real estate though, two things. You got work from home. Uh, and we'll return to work and whatever, however that nets out, the future won't look like the past in my view. Um, the other thing is think about think about retail, think about shopping. Um, I was reading, uh, funnily enough, the essays of Warren Buffett again uh, over the last couple of days, uh, listening to it actually on, a, on Audible. And and he talks about the fact that the, the newspapers were, you know, obviously 
uh, die for businesses with no end in sight until all of a sudden they weren't and they had one. And that was the internet. And I think extrapolation, again, we've talked about that a couple of times. You know, will people go back to work in the same numbers as in the past? I don't know. Um, will retail look like it did in the past? I don't think so. I really honestly think e-commerce continues to be physical retail's internet moment. Not because yeah. it goes away entirely, but because the unit economics of these things crash really, really quickly. Premier Investments, one of the best businesses, retail businesses in the country, is closing stores because on a unit level, they can't justify the rents they're paying and the returns they're getting. Meanwhile, 25% plus of their business is now online. Their single largest yeah. store, if you like, is, is online by a long, long way. So <clears throat> if you look at some of these guys and say, am I prepared to believe and to bet, to invest literally on the basis of the future looking like the past? I don't think I would in these spaces. Uh, Mark's already talked about the fundamental challenge for these companies as well, by the way, on top of that. But even, even on a trend basis, for, for 50 years, 100 years, you could have said retail will be fine. People will go back to the shops because where else are they going to shop? We now know the answer to that question. I'm, I'm far less, again, working, same thing. Where, where else could you work from the office? Well, I'm doing this over Skype. You guys are doing the, the whole Osbys thing over the internet. This is not, this is not back to normal. This is not your yeah. father's uh, yeah, sector. Uh, I'd be very, very concerned. So no, I, I, it's a sell for me. Okay. All right. Uh, Raj wants a view on our big um, um, jobs platform, Seek, Scott. Um, sort of Seek, mm. REA, um, and and Zero. They're all the the big platforms and and tech stocks that have done so well. Yeah, throw car sales in with that and as well. Sales, the big three, yeah, big three classifieds businesses in particular are just ex- astonishingly great companies. Uh, we, uh, Seek's, you know, flight centers demise has been written about for, for you know thirty straight years. Uh, Seek's not miles off that. It was going to be remember Monster Jobs back in the day, yeah. a Monster Board. Then it was going to LinkedIn was going to kill Seek, and then something else was going to kill Seek. And it's not to say it couldn't possibly happen, but um, the network effects of these businesses are extraordinarily strong. They're just incredible. The challenge for Seekers is valuation. It's currently sitting at thirty nine times earnings on my numbers. Um, the problem with Seek is it's a really, really stupidly complex business these days. We, we want to think it's just the seek.com.au classifieds business, and that's still the, the biggest chunk of its company. It has, uh, because um, you know they want to kind of divvy up the business, now got a, an operating business, there's the classifieds business, then kind of a, an internal venture fund, um, mm. which is investing in, in related, so training, employment, um, uh, I think vocational websites across the country and across the world. And so you're kind of buying Seek and you're getting these two really different parts of the business, trying to add them back together and see what they're worth. It seems like the venture fund is doing relatively well. Um, a lot of the businesses are still held and they, as, as venture funds do, they write up the value based on the last transaction. Yeah. And it seems like most of their businesses are doing well there. They're getting higher and higher valuations over time. So I'm, I'm inclined to like that part of the business, bearing in mind these are paper values only. They're not tested by the public market and not in real time. So be careful with that. The Seek business is self-bulletproof. Uh, I think it's a really, really high-class business. I'm a buy on this one, mate, but just recognizing that the share price could be volatile and we haven't yet seen the realized value from the venture fund. I think it's creating enough value to justify it, but just got to know that's what you're getting. You're getting this, again, You know, we think about Seek as the classifieds business. The venture fund is probably going to be the bigger contributor in either direction to the future value. It could well be down, it could be up. Uh, So just be a little bit careful with that. But I I think the P undervalues the business because you're not looking at the internal asset value of the fund, but it is not the uh, the lowest risk business in the world. Yep, interesting, Mark. Yeah, no, it's it's quality business, and the the network effect is, as Buffett described, that's a very strong moat. Yep, and yep. Uh, and they're not. Uh, yeah, they shouldn't be. 
the, the complication of the business is the expansion they've done in other markets and so on, which is, makes it harder to get a grip on, which is what happens in Australia, because any of these companies like REA and so on, they get, you go 10 years at 20% plus or 30% EPS growth, you, you, you're the dominant player. Yep. So yep. the only place to go is yep. overseas. And when you go overseas, you've got to buy <coughs> other companies yep. which often aren't <laughs> making a profit and then try and kiss them and make them work. And, 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 and they're doing, they've done that. But if you look pre-COVID, their earnings were actually on a bit of a slide for about four years, which is a worry. Which is a worry. Yep. Their return on equity is 38%, which is fantastic, as yeah. it should be, because it's a capital light business uh, I'm gonna go I'm gonna agree with Scott I think it probably is a buy mm. it's had it, the profits leapt up over the last 12 months but you could argue that's COVID rebound because the sales came down through COVID mm. fairly heavily so and their earnings obviously yep. dropped too so I, I'd give them a pass on that yeah um, and as long as it you know the, the market stays uh, you know we don't go into a recession or something that would affect labor I think they'll continue to do well and yeah mm. I'll say, I'll say okay and with a tight labour market, yep. bosses are trying to advertise as much as they can to get staff. Uh, our final stock, uh, Mark Jarrell wants a view on GPT, another commercial property group. Uh, similar thoughts to Dexas? So very similar. Also return on equity, sub five, return on capital 2.8. These no. are already poor numbers. Uh, we're showing, I'll give you a prediction on price. It's on, currently on a P, trailing P of 47, wow. which is in the green. Um, so I'll make sure I'm on the right company. Yes, yeah. GBT Group. Yeah. And, and uh, we're showing it returning negative 11% a year, yeah, if you on. bought it at the moment. Right. Uh, EPS growth rate negative 18% and sales are plus 0.9 of a percent. With okay. So sales are growing very, very slowly, less inflation, yeah. and earnings have gone down. They, we went down in COVID, they kept bounce back up and they're going down again. I, I, it has zero interest for me. Scott, anything above zero for you? Uh, can I go with less than zero? Uh, no, we've, we've, we've been lucky to cover uh, real estate reached a couple of different, three different ways, obviously with yeah. the three different companies we've talked about. I've already mentioned I like Goodman better than this. Yeah. Uh, GPT is fine. It's not, as Mark says, not, not performing particularly well. Again, lots of non-cash write downs. You've got to look at the operating earnings of these businesses, but there's nothing there to, to write home about. Uh, I, you know, 6% yield again, it's an okay starting point. If you're desperate, okay, I, I can't go past Goodman and I, I can't any good conscience suggest I think GPT yep. is a buyer. So no, if I ended, I'd sell it in my Goodman instead. Okay. All right. Let's recap the uh, the final five stocks uh, from the gang here. Atlas Arteria, no from both. Uh, Treasury Wine Estate, a buy from Scott, hold from, uh, from Mark. Uh, Dexas, a sell from Scott, no from uh, Mark. Uh, Scott would uh, sell Dexas, get into Goodman, uh, a buy from both on Seek, and likewise with GPT, um, sell from Scott, no from no interest from Mark at all. Scott says another one, just switch into GPT. Uh, Scott Phillips from Motley Fool, great to see you, mate. Thank you kindly. Enjoy the rest of the week. Thank you, Koshi. And Mark Morland from Team Invest, likewise. Thank you. Good to have you. Good Uh, That's our show for today. If you've got any stocks you'd like us to cover, go to osbiz.co slash callpicks and list them there. They'll come through to us or tweet us using the at TV handle and I'll be able to put those stocks to our expert panel. Same time tomorrow. See you then. Stick around. The Pulse is next. What did did you think? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.